Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Rivera, and this is the podcast all about the study of people, their cultures and societies, their behaviors and their history. We have on the show today, Andrew Skinner. Andrew, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Michael. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. Uh, it's a brisk morning. But I have my coffee, so everything is okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> where are you calling in from today? Um, I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa, where it is presently bleak. Uh, it's been raining solidly for a good sort of 10 days or so. Uh, no. The season of soggy stuff. What is it that you, uh, how would you describe what you're doing at the moment in Johannesburg? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm moving into the final year of my PhD. Um, I am uh, a rock art researcher at the Rock Art Research Institute at the University of the Bartosrand. Yeah, cool. Uh, rock art, like so. Um, you know, can you can you give uh, us some um, maybe like uh, introduce us to the rock art uh, that is uh, around South Africa? Sure. So we have um, we have a couple of uh, I guess you could call them traditions, uh, although it's kind of a bit tricky to to put bounds on where one ends and the other begins. Uh, but mm -hmm. the, what I particularly look at is um, it's in an area called the Maluti Drakensberg. It's this huge sort of mountain range dominates pretty much the entire country and subcontinent, I suppose, uh, you know, kind of mad geography. Uh, we've got, you know, changes in altitude that are thousands of meters at a time. Um, and mm -hmm. sort of spread throughout this huge mountain range. Um, we have a painted rock art tradition, specifically uh, sort of brush painted. They're kind of quite widely stereotyped, sort of quite naturalistic looking animals, mm -hmm. people, you know, quite stylized human figures um, engaged in, if you just look at it, I suppose, what might seem uh, kind of like uh, examples of prehistoric life. You know, it, uh, it has the look of something, you know, people going about their daily lives, uh, hunting animals and all the rest of it. I mean, uh, it's, it's substantially more complicated than that when you actually start looking. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, it's the images that you see are kind of what, almost what people would kind of think of, that the sort of stereotype of, you know, a person with a bow and arrow and like an antelope nearby. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but I mean, it's a the tradition has quite substantial time depth. We've got carbon dates, uh, at least sort of regionally, that are sort of on the order of you know, four thousand, five thousand plus years. But it, what's particularly interesting is that we also have people who are painting right into the sort of colonial period in South Africa, last sort of uh, you know even the last century. Mm -hmm. The sort of body of images is sort of hundreds of thousands of individual images, thousands of sites, and it's hugely diverse, resistant to categorization by style, kind of really hard to, to like put, put bubbles or Venn diagrams on. Mm -hmm. my, my research is sort of built on this. The, the art has a hunter-gatherer, uh, well, we, we would say that the, the authors were a hunter-gatherer society or societies mm -hmm. um, that sort of obviously have been around for, for quite a while. Uh, and... Uh, you know, when you when you talk about something that's done so painstakingly, so carefully, you know, human beings rarely do things with a really sort of simple uh, motivation. Mm -hmm. We've got this seemingly continuous tradition where people are doing you know, quite 
quite precise uh, work to get to get something across that's obviously got meaning to them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Are they? Um, you mentioned like how you know you're you're talking about how like painstaking it is. Are they? Mm-hmm. How how exactly are they creating the the cave art? And, and does it vary? Are they like etching it into the wall? Are they having to you know prepare materials to like color? The, the wall completely um, so I mean this is, this is probably the only way that we really reliably um, come up with the idea like traditions is there are some that look like they're painted with finger you know finger painted uh, there are others that are engraved although they're not normally in in this part of the country there there are engravings sort of in the Karoo desert uh, sort of uh, to the west of where this is mm-hmm. um, but these are a fine line uh, well, a lot of them are fun. Like, like I was saying, there's quite a lot of um, diversity within it. Uh, but there's a lot of it that is uh, you know, made with brushes. So when you think of hunter galleries, you don't necessarily think of someone sitting down with a very fine little paintbrush. Uh, but you know, their material culture package included, included these quite fine little brushes, uh, mm. palettes of paint. Uh, the paint is made... You know, through a variety of processes, um, using like iron oxide for red uh, and some yellows, uh, you get uh, sort of charcoal bases and other things to make black paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're using like plant sap, animal fat, uh, sort of slightly more um, uh, interesting things like uh, human uh, human fluids, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and uh, you know, there's. As there is diversity in the sort of images we see, there's diversity in the in the manufacture, mm-hmm. but it is it is quite quite detailed and painstaking. Uh, you know, in some cases we have these huge panels, like eight, nine, ten meters across, uh, thousands of images on them. Yeah, you know, people are obviously adding to this over time. This is, uh, you know, quite obviously of some significance. Yeah, for sure. So have, has this cave art been studied by anthropologists only recently or for a very long time? So, I mean, it, uh, it kind of goes back. Um, there's that sort of uh, stereotype of the colonial explorer covering in, in scare quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these, these sort of chapels of prehistoric man or what have you. Uh, but, I mean, it's so, sort of serious scholarship is a bit more recent, but, you know, I use that to really say kind of more inclusive mm. that doesn't just walk out and say, well, you know, we obviously have a person with a bow and arrow and we have an antelope. Therefore, this is a sort of documentary filmmaking of a prehistoric society. Uh, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't have any, like, that, that analysis doesn't have any depth to it. Uh, right. And it kind of implies unfortunate things about the artist. It says that, well, the most significant thing they could find to do at their time is, you know, I saw a good looking antelope one day and really had to get that down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't, uh, it, it really isn't a, like a thorough approach. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in the sort of the late seventies, there was sort of a realization that we need to be a bit more, a bit more thorough about what we were talking about. And uh, there's, um, some ethnography that was collected in the uh, 19th century German linguist uh, working in Cape Town mm-hmm. who interview- was interviewing these folks, uh, hunter-gatherer or people from a hunter-gatherer society. Obviously, things get uh, changed and reordered in the colonial period quite substantially. Um, 
but uh, like hunting and gathering isn't their only mode of subsistence after that contact. Yeah, well, yeah, contact is hugely disruptive, um, and I would, like particularly um, in a, a European systems of control are disruptive. They displace people. They they destroy populations. You know, um, people's lives don't look you know completely the same before and after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the people who are being interviewed are, are actually prisoners in the local jail, um, you know, refugees from, from far away. Um, and, but they've got this sort of coherent belief system that's come with them. You know, you don't, just because you aren't where you were before, you haven't, you don't lose everything that you knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, um, they had quite a lot to say. Yeah. Um, and it, we see quite striking parallels between what, what these people were talking about. Um, there are the sources we sort of take from as, as much as we can reach, but the sort of most complete sources, these people in Cape Town. Uh, and, you know, they have a, a shamanistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, you know, their religious rituals involve going into another state of consciousness. Um, you know, you talk about going to the other world and, uh, you know, this is this, so like a pretty good example of, of what changed our outlook on the rock art was when you have a shamanistic, uh, worldview, you sort of believe that, you know, people can leave their bodies and they ascend into the sky or sort of go underground to where the spiritual realms are. Right. And uh, it sort of reflects the, you know, the, what it feels like to be in that in that mental state. Um, you, you know, if you've had a migraine, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you have that feeling of the world closing in around you, or you know, um, your sort of your head being pulled up away from the ground. Um, you know, their religious metaphors sort of reflect what it feels like to be in a trance state. And uh, if you think about that, as in. Like, you know, sort of side-on view of the world has the spiritual world above, a sort of underworld below, and a strip of the world that we all live in in the middle. And uh, if that's the case, then it's kind of like where the where the ground breaks, or places where you can go underground. Those places are kind of interfaces with the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you're painting on this, you're you're actually going into the cracks in the world. Um, the sort of like halfway point between this place and that place, and you're painting on that. That obviously has more significance than I saw a good-looking antelope. Yeah, <laughs> very uh, existential. Oh yeah, completely. And mm-hmm. you're, you're you're working on the interface between dimensions in your universe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, you'll obviously it'll have so much more significance because mm-hmm. of that. I'm curious to know whether there were writers or other other ethnographers that just came before you that you know sort of really inspired the directions that you've taken in order to you know ask questions about this cave art and and understand it uh, in a little bit of a more nuanced way Mm. well i mean so um i'm i'm based at the rocket research institute at Wits university and that institute is pretty much built on on this kind of uh sort of more we call it an informed approach Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, I'm really, I'm working on top of this body of scholarship that's pretty, pretty developed at this stage. Um, you know, my interest is in, is in trying to 
uh, sort of look critically at the way that we're using ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there's been a lot of, uh, there's already a lot of discussion on, um, you know, we kind of have, like, even though it has the spiritual dimension to it, that the art isn't a complete sort of verbatim recording of, of things that happens in people's lives, it is also a, it's kind of an archive of its own. It doesn't, um, you know, when when we're trying to talk about sort of the uh, history of this place, um, there's obviously a bias towards sort of written, uh, you know, colonial sources or sort of in the sort of post-colonial setting, still academic mm-hmm. sources. Um, you know, it's we don't really have as much of a developed model for bringing in, you know, uh, perspectives other than that. And it obviously slants our conversation about local history. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, trying to look for a way to build this stuff in, like we've, you know, we've, we've got an archive here of, uh, an indigenous perspective, um, that has a you know, greater time depth than we can access. And, uh, you know, is, you know, as I would say it's quite important to bring in perspectives that aren't sort of the dominant narrative mm-hmm. where we can. Mm-hmm. And so my interest is in trying specifically to look at a framework for including that sort of more conspicuously in our conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, what, what stage of your, your work are you currently in? So I'm, I'm moving into my last uh, year of PhD study. I'll sort of go through the process a little bit, um, but it involved a whole lot of interviews um, so, so for my, for, for my, my preceding research, um, I figured, well, you know, the people who were interviewed, um, for the, for one of our sort of source, source ethnographies, uh, came from a place that's quite far away from the art that we're using, you know, their testimonies are used to interpret this stuff in the Drakensberg, this sort of huge mountain range in the eastern mm-hmm. part of the country, but the ethnography comes from the west. And, you know, it's a couple, couple hundred, almost thousand kilometers away, uh, separated by who knows how many hundreds of years, potentially thousands mm-hmm. of years, even potentially. Um, you know, what happened if, uh, what happened if I went to the place that the ethnography comes from? You know, what would I, you know, could I find a sample of art there that shared the context of the people who, you know, whose testimonies we're using to interpret mm-hmm. this stuff? And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was quite an experience um, because ultimately we didn't really find that we could map it perfectly mm-hmm. across. Um, you know, the the model we use in, in the Drakensberg looks the way it does because of the kinds of images we're finding. So we find images of people in these sort of ritual postures. Um, you know, they're, they're doing things that we can tie to a religious interpretation. Uh, in in the in the desert, I didn't really find anything of that, uh, but I found that the sort of the motivations behind it were right. coherent. Uh, people are doing something different, but for similar reasons. And so, um, you know, now wanting to come back and say, well, is there a way that I can look at? Uh, you know, is there a way I can access some kind of contextual ethnography now in the mountains? It's a bit complicated because the people who painted aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the colonial era was hugely traumatic um, for that part of the country. Oh, well, for obviously the whole subcontinent, the population of people who painted 
were destroyed, uh, assimilated, displaced um, in that. Uh, and so that identity isn't really around anymore. But there are people who live near these paintings today. And, um, you know, because of that kind of top-down outlook that anthropology often has, it's hard to really have a framework to include them in the interpretive, the interpretive process. Yeah. You know, it'll be the person with the, the letters before their name who walks in, the outsider who walks in and says, well, you know, here we have this panel, uh, you know, the meanings of the following symbols are as follows. You sort of pronounce on it in a way that isn't really particularly democratic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people who live in an area, sort of the model is consistent. It's like, it says, well, you know, we've got this ethnographic analogy we, you know, people who live in this place, um, you know, if you if you use their ethnography as a lens, the stuff in the maps makes sense. Uh, you know, the people who live in the area today don't have that belief system, and so they're they're not qualified, <laughs> you know, to, to sort of be uh, uh, slightly uh, grotesque about it. But you know. Um, you say, well, these people don't have the relevant identity, therefore they can't contribute to the conversation. And, you know, it's an interesting thing for me in particular, because you can say, well, the model, the model can be right, but it can also be exclusionary. Yeah. And that there might be a meaningful way to have a slightly more democratic process. Mm. So, so how do you tackle this challenge of of trying to find the, the, the right explanations or the most inclusive explanations then. And, and can you share some, I don't, I don't want to call it results because it's always a work in progress, but can you share some details about maybe things that you've noticed in your research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you, if you start with the sort of principle that, um, you know, the communities that have been, that are here now have, have history in the area and that, when you have a bunch of human beings in one place, they don't remain these neat little bubbles. Um, you know, you, you transfer language, genetics, ideology, religion, you know, these things, these things are sort of permeable or permeate rather. And so, um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of, it's reasonable to suggest that then that, you know, if I can't, so I can't reach the identity sort of ideology of the painters, but the people who live there now, their ancestors, they, they, they share an ancestral context with these people, with the painters. Mm -hmm. Can the functions of a society living in a place act as my sampling mechanism? You know, uh, you know, is there a way for people to contribute things that they mm -hmm. don't, you sort of don't strictly remember yourself, but that have been remembered nonetheless? Um, and so yeah. uh, the process was sort of, uh, you know, so in this, in this case, I'm, I'm sort of trying to work a test case is to say, well, um, the place that we're working in, there's, uh, people who are there are mostly Ntu speaking. So the language group is called Ntu, you know, however you want to define an identity, you know, there is a package of language and genetics and some economy like herding, farming, iron age, material culture. Uh, that comes down and meets the hunter-gatherer societies that have been here a little bit longer, mm. um, and you know you could, if you if you, in some ways I feel sort of dishonest. You could uh, you could say, well, you know, we're looking for people who have uh, the sort of genetics that are sort of more highly localized, uh, rather than the stuff that came down from from further north. 
Mm. Or, I mean, you could, you, could, you could be sort of quite precise and you could say, well, hunter-gatherers don't really have uh, as long a history with livestock. So we'll look for people who've got, with a population distribution of lactose tolerance. Right. So they will, okay, so these people have a sort of greater tie to the stuff that came in from the north and these people don't. Or these people have higher uh, connection to the hunter-gatherers. But the problem is that like, sort of identity... Uh, identity is something that's happening in the present. Genetics is something that's happened already. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, if we're being quite honest about it, we have to say, well, um, anyone who's around here, their identities may, there are identity, ideology, ontology, all the rest of it, the, the belief systems about the world um, could include this stuff irrespective of, of whatever sort of... Uh, whatever limitations or parameters we impose on who's relevant. Um, and so I decided that I would just interview people in the context of the art because that was the thing that I could control sort of most honestly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we went looking. Uh, we, we tried to find something that we could have uh, control uh, sort of in the, in the like testing sense of control. So there is... You know, what is something that we know came down with this? And what, what, is, what is a kind of a belief element that came, that is common in Central West Africa that is, that is here? And then we compare that to a belief system that we've got from these ethnographies that are the hunter-gatherer material. Mm-hmm. And we interview people um, on whatever that subject matter was. So in my case... Uh, we'd interview people about uh, snakes and rivers. So there's this complex of snake and river beliefs uh, in Central West Africa. There is an, a non-coherent model in hunter-gatherer stuff, and we chat to people. Mm-hmm. You know what? You know when you when you see a snake, does that mean anything to you? And uh, we compare their answers to the ethnography that we've got uh, from. You know, the, the hunter-gatherer ethnography representing something that was here for a bit longer, the sort of Central West African, the Intu-speaking package of ideology and belief being the other thing. And where we saw commonalities with the hunter-gatherer material, that was a persistent thing. That was something that had, had uh, that was preserved, uh, you know, whether or not people meant it to. Um, and then this other stuff would be a sort of... Um, uh, indication of something that was a bit more recent, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, the the interviews the interviews were definitely a learning experience. Uh, you know, you you can read as many anthropological textbooks as you like, but you know, sitting down and talking to someone, uh, particularly when they, you know, we we found that people who uh, who had more to say were generally also more willing to talk. So obviously we can't we can't compel people to chat to us, and it's it, it's kind of it's a little bit intrusive, and we we recognise that. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, we found you know, particularly um, sort of specialists in traditional medicine, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. the sort of snake complex uh, has medicinal uh, elements mm-hmm. to it. People use parts of snakes in the local medicinal systems. Uh, and so there is particular significance to the people who deal in this stuff. Um, and they were also the people who were just much more interested in talking to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, a, there was distribution in the kinds of answers that we got, things that were more coherent uh, with one body of, of ethnography than another. 
Um, but, um, you know, some, some of it was more sort of clearly aligned to that, that older um, belief set of the stuff that seems to have been in this part of the subcontinent for much longer. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting the way these things play out. Like we found in places we were expecting, because the communities are a little bit older, um, so part of this was done alongside, uh, there's a, it was another researcher who's looking, he's uh, actually a forensic, or who's interested in genetics, but for forensic purposes. Hmm. So busy building uh, a baseline to then be used in, uh, in like judicial proceedings. Um, you know, sampling um, is, well, I mean, he's uh, the, the main researcher, uh, well, hopefully Dr. Les Alwana uh, shortly. Uh, he's, uh, mm-hmm. um, he was sampling uh, genetics of, of communities that sort of had history that was a little bit more well-established, um, you know, that had been, that we had sort of historic or oral accounts of having been there longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those settings, we found quite a sort of heterogeneous uh, sample. People were, you know, you, you interview one person in one house and just down, just down the road, there's someone with a radically different outlook on the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in communities that we were expecting to be themselves more heterogeneous, they have those sort of communities that have quite diverse backgrounds, they oddly had more coherent, sort of regionally coherent beliefs. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we found some stuff that uh, is a really good match for hunter-gatherer ethnography that seems to represent this older uh, thread of belief in the region. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, do, you, do, you find it, uh, do you find it easy to um, take these interviews and then and then synthesize something that we can say about, about these belief systems and potentially the reasons why this cave art was uh, so important to societies? Uh, no, it is not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're trying to be aware of, of what you're doing because uh, ultimately as a researcher, you're looking for patterns, um, particularly as a social, uh, in, in the social sciences. Uh, very aware that there's a difference between what you think is a commonality and what actually probably represents, you know, what, like the difference between a legitimate repeating element and a pattern that you've just seen. Right. Um, so a large part of it is, you know, uh, the questions were intention, the interview questions were intentionally open-ended. Um, you know, they would they'd focus conversation, but, you, know, you don't want to lead someone along and get the kind of answer you're you're hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing then happens in in the interpretive side. Uh, so this is this is where I'm at in my research in my research at the moment is uh, just the synthesis element, trying to find uh, a sort of consistent. Because I mean, obviously, as well, people speak differently, um, and quite often we're going through a translator as well. The people in in this region speak quite a varied uh, selection of languages. Right. Um, and uh, so the translators that we're working through themselves, I mean, it, it's not always the same person. Um, the translators will have uh, sort of biases, subconscious biases of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's pretty challenging. Um, it, a lot of it, 
sort of starts to look like literary analysis. Right. Um, yeah, you're sort of just looking for uh, repeated, like repetition format that, that the people that people are speaking in. Like, how do how do they relate things together? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, or or do they? Is there like a meaningful uh, thread that you can see in in the way someone describes mm-hmm. them? Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's it's not easy, and I'm expecting I'm expecting this last year of research to be quite challenging. <laughs> right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but it's 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 also I suppose it's the difference between as the researcher, someone who's immersed in it, you can say, well, yes, I'd like this. Really looks like it's it's this older thread of belief, mm-hmm. and this really doesn't. But you've you've got to <laughs> you've got to make that convincing. Mm-hmm. You've got to you've got to present that to the world and say, well, this is why. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's non-trivial, right? Um- so I'm, I'm thinking of closing the show soon. Sure. What would you say are, are like some of the main takeaways that derive from your research? And, you know, what do you think that others in the field will be interested in when you, you know, come to uh, disseminate some of your, your findings? Sure. So um, I think a large part of it is that there really, there does genuinely seem to be, uh, I mean, it's, it, it fits into a wider conversation on who gets to pronounce, you don't want to say pronounce on it, but, you know, who gets to be part of the interpretive process. Uh, you know, uh, rocket research in South Africa isn't entirely unique in the sense that if you look at uh, rock, art, sort of rock art in North America or in Australia, um, various other parts of the world where there are people who are around who still kind of have those identities. Mm. Um, but where just the format of academic discussion doesn't really, doesn't really permit them to be part of it. You know, like someone like me has had the privilege to go through a university system. And that is the, that is the baseline that makes me the one, right. you know, more often than not, or people like yeah. me the one who gets to, to define things. Because you've ended up in a position where you can be the one publishing on it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I have, I have access in ways that, you know, the people to whom the heritage ultimately belongs. You know, the stuff, the stuff, you know, itself has a context and the people who share that context have, have a claim on it. Um, and it's part of their history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to me that you know, even when the population isn't really strictly around anymore in the South African context, uh, there's, it's clear to me that there is still very much a claim on sort of on being at the table and interpretation, uh, even to people who aren't strictly, you know, you know they're not they're not this hunter gatherer identity. Um, you know, their their claim on mm-hmm. this heritage is quite solid. You know, um, even even if you like purely from a theoretical perspective, you know, like you know, obviously there's a, there's an ethical claim to be made, but you know, there are people who perhaps maybe want to de-emphasize that. It is significant that we can say, from a theoretical perspective, if our framework, if we come up with a framework to accommodate it, then we should, uh, because it does seem like there's good reason to, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's quite significant to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I was curious to know whether like there are other areas of uh, anthropology or archaeology that you have 
become more interested in during this research? And, you know, where, what kind of areas would you like to explore in the future? So I think, um, I think I want to spend some time with this idea of, of persistence. Um, you know, cause obviously I'm looking at it in a quite sort of constrained, uh, sense, but you know, when we think of, cause there's kind of a tension in anthropology. You don't want to say that people are, you know, like if I, if I call you, uh, if I call you a certain thing, does that sort of imply that you are, you know, your identity is some total of that, whatever that label is. Mm-hmm. If we're being honest about it, we should say that, you know, you are is a product of the present, but your past can be many things. And that means that our study of, of someone can take on these quite, uh, sort of quite, uh, branching, uh, elements. You know, we don't, we don't talk about someone being like essentially, X, you know, their, their, the life ways of their ancestors probably had a lot of complexity and nuance to them. And just because that's hard to reach doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily look. So I kind of want to, you know, I'm, I'm interested in spending more time looking at that. Right. Uh, but I also, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, um, I don't know if I'm going to be uh, an academic forever. It's, uh, it's quite straining. <laughs> right. Right, right. Well, like if people want to um, ask you any questions about this interview or they kind of want to follow this work going forward, can they find you somewhere online? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm primarily on Twitter. Uh, my, my handle is Apocrobot, uh, A-P-O-C-R-O-B-O-T. Okay. Yeah, um, although I'm mostly nattering about uh, science fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh you know d- depends what you're interested in i'm happy to chat uh to anyone who's interested mm-hmm. yeah cool can you think of a hashtag for this episode i usually ask the guests for one so that listeners can sort of use the hashtag to indicate they've heard the whole way through you see i thought about this because i you know it's uh I, I quoted on a couple of episodes and I cannot for the life of me think of anything that I like. Uh, so, um, I mean, I guess ancestral memory. Ancestral memory. Oh, well, that's a great one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> What's the meaning behind that one? Well, it's, uh, I suppose it's, it's, it sort of just represents, uh, you know, what, what, what I'm interested in, in sort of the broadest sense, mm-hmm. you know, can do people, is there a sort of a framework that we can look at taking seriously the idea that some things outlive us mm-hmm. in the memory of others? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, I think it sums it up pretty well. Do you have any uh, closing messages, like anything that you feel that we haven't covered already or, you know, things to get off your chest? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I think think I've got, that's pretty much uh, everything I I wanted to say. Thank you very much for listening to me mumble. That was great. Really interesting areas because like I don't work in this area Mm. myself. I think many listeners don't either, but it's a really, you know, just a really important aspect of like what makes us human and uh, it's it's you know been really great to delve into it with you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, listeners, if you like this episode, then let us know on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Arcananth Pod. You can find new episodes of the show uh, on Arcananth.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. I want to say thank you to the patrons for supporting the show. 
month to month. If you also want to support the show and become a patron, then find out more about the benefits of doing so at patreon.com slash arcananthpod. A lot of information about Andrew's work uh, and and the work of all of our other guests can be found on our website at arcananth.com. Andrew, thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, maybe you can come back on the show when you synthesized everything in about a year's time. That's a terrifying idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I took about a year and a half, but yes, (laughs) maybe again in the future we can speak. Okay. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.